So to that end, I would like you to join me in Luke chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter, begin with me in the 11th verse. Luke 17, 11. While you're on your way there, I'm going to, to pray over our time one more time. Lord, I thank you again for just your presence with us. I thank you for the time we can come together as the body and look into your word. Lord, I plead your presence here today, Lord, with me as I speak. Lord, give me unction, move in me by your spirit to have a fire in my bones for your truth. And Lord, I pray for the people of God as well, that you would come here, meet with us in your word, speak to us. And Lord, let us leave the room changed and moved in our hearts. Uh, we, we implore that from you, Lord. We recognize our need of you this morning. Uh, be, be with us in our time now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in our narrative, we will pick up with Jesus as he is traveling about throughout the region on his ministry, taking the gospel wherever he goes. He's been preaching the kingdom. He has been in a series of parables before we meet him here, teaching on, on what the kingdom is like. But here we find him not in a parable, but in an encounter that he has that will be instructive for us. So look with me in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. As Jesus is entering this village, and note it says, as he enters. So the picture you're getting is he's still outside on his way in. And he's met by these ten men, ten leprous men. Now, there's, there's a lot of debate that goes on sometimes on exactly what the leprosy of the day would have been. They didn't have all the designations that we do for skin diseases. But whatever kind of skin disease that these men might have had, it, it was one that was eating away at their flesh in such a way that it left an open wound. And what would happen with these, these people who would have these kind of diseases, open wounds like that were unclean in the Jewish context. And they would be put outside of the village, outside of the camp, because they were ritually unclean. So we find them in this state of desperation, uh, cloistered together, because they are all they have for community. It is the unclean with the unclean. Um, and they're out here, and you see them. Not only have they been thrown out from the city, and they can't go into the city, but even people who come out by Jewish law that you can read in Leviticus 13 and 14, they are required to stay off at a distance, put their hand over their upper lip, says the text, and yell, unclean, unclean. So as they see Jesus coming into this village, they know who he is. You can tell because they address him by name. And they must know something of his reputation. We need to remember Jesus was a, a public figure. He was known for his healings. He was known as a rabbi. So they see him. And they hope in him. These ten lepers are actually hoping in Jesus. They see him and they think, well, we've heard the stories. Maybe they heard about in Luke chapter 5 when a leper came to the feet of Jesus. Had the brazenness to come all the way to his feet, although he should have been at a distance. And Jesus reached out and he touched him and he was cleansed in an instant. 
And these men, here, having heard these type of things, cry out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They hope in Jesus, but they remain at a distance. Do you think that we know some people like that today? I don't know if you have ever run into anyone in this camp, but I have met people who have told me they can't darken the door of a church. They can't go into a church because they will desecrate the very ground it's built on. Because they feel so, so vile, so dirty. They know what they've done wrong. They know their uncleanness. And they feel like they have to remain distant. But I think that mentality actually creeps its way into the church as well. Perhaps there's some of you today who don't really feel like coming much to the Lord in prayer a lot of the times, or you don't open up and share in your Mosaic group. You're, you're scared to share your life with people because you are so aware of the uncleanness of your heart. You know your sin. You know your problem. You hate it. You fight it, but you're just losing it. And, and in the end, it holds you off at a distance from people and from God because there you sit in your sin. That's not a new condition. We see men like that all the way back here in the times of Jesus and they look to Jesus and they cry out for help. So what will Jesus do? Look with me to verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priests. Now, for us, at first, that may be very interesting. Show yourself to the priests. What, what is this about? Well, again, if you go back to Leviticus 13 and 14, what you'll find is there was actually a process in Israel for a leper that may be cleansed, that, that maybe they, they diagnosed it wrong. Maybe he, it, the, the skin disease wasn't fully chronic. Maybe he recovers. Maybe it's a miracle of God that he recovers. But there was an avenue to, to come back into the fold and to come back into the community, be reassimilated if your disease went away. But when Jesus tells them this, I want you to know the initial thought of the lepers must have been that Jesus is blowing us off. Jesus, we know about going to the priest. We went to the priest. When I first saw that spot, when I first realized I had some kind of an unclean infection, I went to the priests and they went through the law and they took it and they looked at it and they're like, well, is this, is this chronic or is this just a little wound that he has? So they would shut them up for a number of days. And while they're shut up waiting to see if it gets worse, these leprous men would no doubt be in angst the entire time. Wondering, praying, Lord, is it really this bad? Is it going to be so bad? Am I going to be thrown out? So when he tells them to go to the priest, that's the experience they've had going to the priests. And in the end, the priest had to make their ruling. Yes, it is chronic. It is that bad. You're unclean. But though the, the answer from Jesus wasn't maybe what they were looking for, though maybe the answer from Jesus wasn't an immediate um, uh, yes, let me touch you and cleanse you. These men obey anyway. And what I want us to see in that is a measure of faith in Jesus. There's some end where they're willing to listen. They're willing to follow what Jesus says. So there they go, off to the priests. And what happens? To read the rest of verse 14. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
Now, I don't have time to preach a whole sermon on this. I almost wish that I could. But notice, it is in their obedience to the command of Jesus that they find healing. It is in obedience, on their way, doing as they were instructed, that they are met with this grace. And that would be true for many of us today. But today, I I don't have time to camp there because what we need to get to is now how will they respond to the grace they have received? These ten lepers, how will they respond? Let's pick it up in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. We see here, and in the Greek it's quite emphatic, that one man out of ten runs back. Something stops him. It says that he turns around or he returns to Jesus. Something strikes him about what has happened. He can't believe that he's healed. It's too good to be true. And the the automatic response for him is to run back to the feet of Jesus and to fall there and to praise God and say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You've changed my life forever and I owe you everything. So now we need to ask a different question. How will Jesus respond to this man? And I think we should, we should really understand, right? This is our Jesus, the one who, who leaves the 99 for the one, right, that we love to sing about. Surely he'll scoop him up and say, well, I, believe me, it was no imposition at all. I love you. I care for you. And, and it was really no trouble. So, so just stand on up and it's good that you're with me now. But that's not the response that Jesus gives. Read it with me. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? This truth, the truth of this text challenges me, I think, where I am today. This text shows us that Jesus has some level of expectation when he gives grace. So when he poured that grace out on ten men, when he cleansed ten lepers, and only one returns, it is not that he has no joy over the one, and we'll see that, he surely does, but also... He has this expectation out of these others. Where are those nine? Do you not owe thankfulness? Have you not really messed up and missed a pretty big thank you in your life to the nine? So having, having that, that impropriety marked and highlighted, he, he also turns his attention to the one. And to that one, he notes the unlikeliness of his return. Because the one that does return, he says, was no one found to return except this foreigner. He was the Samaritan, the outsider, the one not probably reared in the synagogue, the one that didn't grow up in church, hadn't been taught all the right things. And this is the one that gets it. And it's a reversal, as we see throughout Luke, of those you would expect to see the kingdom and understand the kingdom 
don't, and those who you might expect have no clue about it, have their eyes open to see. And so he commends this man, and he says to him in verse 19, Rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. From here, that's, that's your narrative. That, that's, what, that's what the story of, of the text is about. And what I want us to do is examine that question a little bit that Jesus had. Where are the nine? What do you think the nine probably were up to while the one was at Jesus' feet? I imagine if you ask them, they were obeying what Jesus said. So you're on your way. You realize that you're cleansed. You're overcome with joy. You think, wow, thanks a lot, Jesus. I'm healed. I'm cleansed. It's time to get off to the priest so that I can get my certificate saying I am clean. So that I can go and I see my wife. I can see my kids. I, I, can, I can run again through the streets of the village. I can see the people I used to see. And, and, and in a way, don't be too hard on them. They are enjoying the gift of grace that was lavished on them. They're by no means villains. But they're missing something. They're missing something big because they are so interested in enjoying and gobbling up the benefits of Jesus' grace that they have missed Jesus. And they have missed the relationship that is extended to them in this grace. You see, because when you really think about it, what is the difference? What is the difference between the one and the nine? Jesus spotlights it for us very clearly. It's not really an exegetical trick. He says in verse 19, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, what we need to do then is acknowledge there's some difference in the faith of the one and the faith of the nine. Right. Because remember with me, the nine hoped in Jesus. They cried out to him for help to be cleansed. And the the nine probably, I I would say from the text, understood that it was Jesus who healed them. But what is different about the faith of this one? Because the faith of the nine seemed to suffice in as much as they were cleansed. But the, the, the cleansing that went on, the healing, when it says that they were healed, is a different word than Jesus is using when he says, your faith has made you well. A better translation that would actually be to say, your faith has saved you. So, so the nature of the faith here is, is completely different. One of them is sufficient only for the physical malady. The other one has restored this man's soul, and it has brought him in relationship with Jesus. So what is it that he has faith in that the nine didn't? What does he see that they don't? Look with me for a minute over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of the disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So the question here, is Jesus the Messiah? Has the kingdom really come? That's the rumor. That's the word. That's what John had thought, but he's not so sure. So he's asking for confirmation. And when the men, verse 20, had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one 
who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When asked who he is and if he is really bringing the kingdom, Jesus points to his miracles. He points to his signs. He says, and he speaks of this elsewhere, that his signs and his works attest to his identity and that people should understand who he is and what he's doing by these signs if they have faith, if they have the faith in the eyes to see. I think our leper today, our one Samaritan Thankful leper had the eyes of faith to see this. When he is walking along and realizes he has been cleansed, he realizes that a miracle has taken place and that he has received grace from the hand of none other but God on high. That the floodgates of heaven have opened up and the the kingdom has come. The one talked about, the Messiah, is here And it means everything is different for him in his life. And so he is compelled then, if if God has really touched his life, to return to the feet of Jesus. And that is what what sparks his return. So that, that the first difference that we see between the one and the nine is the nature of their faith. Because, mark this down, if you don't get anything else I say, thankfulness is rooted in our faith. Thankfulness is rooted in our faith. You can't be thankful to God for something unless you have the faith to believe God gave you that. You cannot be thankful for something unless you have the faith to see it was a gift from God. So we see that thankfulness is rooted in faith, but then we also see that thankfulness has the fruit of relationship. Thankfulness has the fruit of relationship. So the the nine... When we find them in our, in our narrative, they start out at a distance, right? They can't come near to Jesus because they're consumed with their uncleanness. But then grace meets them where they're at, right? Jesus touches their lives and they, as the one, would be just as free to come to him and come near to him. But they don't. They remain distant in in, in the tragedy of all tragedies for humankind. When God reaches out with a hand of grace, inviting people in, they choose to remain at a distance from the very one who created them, gave them meaning and purpose, and loves them and would care for them and cherish them. And they miss that. So they just go on with their lives and miss something so much bigger. Contrast that. With our Samaritan, who comes back to Jesus, sits at his feet, and, and, and reacts relationally to a relational grace bestowed. So you see, the difference here is whether we interact with God on the basis of a transfer or an interaction. Is it a transfer or an interaction? Does he just download grace into your life and you go on like he's some kind of a slot machine? Or is this actually a back-and-forth relational cycle 
I'd like to point this even to a human relationship. How many of you husbands, wives, or significant others, if your spouse or significant other does something lavishly kind for you, they go out of their way, they, they work very hard to bless you, and then you don't say a word about it or completely disacknowledge it in every way. How's that going to work out for you? Very coldly. Very coldly, yeah. We can see that, we know this, right? We know this, and we make it, and this is where I'm going to start to tip my hand to why I believe this is a discipline. We know better than to do that. We know better than to blow off mama when mama has done something sweet to us. You know better than that. And you will make sure to ensure your relationship with mama is good. You will make sure that you acknowledge her kindness to you. Say, thank you, mama. And yet, when lavish grace from a king on high, we can completely ignore it sometimes and just go on with our life without a a second thought to how that affects our relationship with him. See, it is this relational component to thankfulness that makes it such a key and such an important uh, spiritual discipline in our lives. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or realized it, but all of the spiritual disciplines are ultimately about our relationship with God. Uh, here you go, a definition of spiritual, uh, spiritual discipline from, from Caleb Brewster. It is an activity in which we engage to ensure that we are growing and deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we do that, and as I start to explain thankfulness as a spiritual discipline, you'll note, wow, he sure is mixing that up with some of the other disciplines. And that is absolutely correct. We, we can't speak of them entirely in isolation. One cannot speak of thankfulness without speaking of prayer. cannot speak of Bible study, I don't think, responsibly without speaking uh, of, of prayer. We can't speak of those without solitude. We certainly couldn't engage in all of the rest without service. So, so no matter what we do, we're in this spot where the, the disciplines go together as with any, if it is about relationship, that makes sense because relationship is complex and it requires a lot of things. So, so don't pick on me too bad as I get into to thankfulness and, and it kind of blends into some of our other disciplines. But first, and we've hit on it pretty largely already, but the question of why thankfulness should be a discipline. The number one reason why is that we have the default setting, the tendency, to follow after the nine in our text this morning. You and I, left to our own devices, like the nine, will be self-centered every time, and we will go our own way. Now with that, I don't want you to get too, too bogged down and confused. Are you saying that I'm chronically one of the nine and never can be anything different? No, in the case of our text, we're looking at kind of a case study of this. There is one act of grace from Jesus to which they all respond differently. But the fact is, we live in a condition, especially as saints, where grace has been lavished on us and is continually lavished on us. So can I suggest to you today that one day maybe you respond rightly. One day maybe you're the one. But then the next day... 
you slip back into your default of being the nine and ignoring him that day, in that moment, for that grace received. And because that is our tendency, we need to find ways in our life to guard against that, to, to show in our life we care enough about our relationship with Jesus, like we would with our mama, to make sure we don't offend or step on the toes of, not, not just because we want to keep, you know, we're trying to, to kiss up to him in the sense that we think of brown nosing, but in the sense that we legitimately care about how Jesus feels, how he feels about us, whether we leave him shaking his head saying, where are the nine? Where are the nine? That should sting us if we put him in that position. So, so one of them is, is we want to escape that, that tendency of lack of faithfulness. And I, I want to hit on this before I move on to. I think being thankful is also very difficult uh, in our society because we have really taken to two main streams of thought right now in kind of our culture. The first one is entitlement. Entitlement has been on the rise kind of in our demeanor and in our attitudes, I think, just as a culture and as a society for a while. And the thing is, if you have an entitlement mentality, when you receive grace, you just think, cool, I received grace. It was kind of God's job after all, you know. And so that entitlement can creep in. And what happens is because of that, we, it encourages us to miss the grace bestowed on us. But then in response to that, there's been this doubling down also, and maybe something more prevalent in this room, of earning. If I'm not entitled, maybe I have to earn everything. You're not entitled to doggone things, son. You've got to earn stuff in this life. That's the culture I came from myself. And the, the earning, what I want you to see this morning, it's having that mentality in general is actually strikingly the same as entitlement in both cases the problem is i am centered on me and what i am getting whether it's because i was entitled to it or i earned it and both of them avoid a nasty thing that we like to avoid and that is the posture of a receiver the posture of a receiver because the only posture appropriate for someone receiving is on your knees with your hands out. And that'll strike at the heart of human pride. That'll, that'll get you in the day, in the night, any time. You have to sit on your knees and receive. But the teaching of Scripture is clear, isn't it? Paul asked the question, what do we have that we have not received? Nothing. Christians, today, I remind you, I encourage you to think about everything that you are, anything that you have, has only come to you from the benevolent hand of God. And because of that, we need to find this posture of thankfulness. And we need to think about, okay, as a discipline, how will we do that? So, so we've done our why. This is why we need to, to cultivate uh, the discipline of thankfulness, but we also need to think about how. How then do you go about that? Well, it's, I'm not going to pretend I'm going to take a page out of Aaron's book from the other week. I, I don't have it all figured out on the how. I've been struck over the last couple of weeks working on this message of how difficult it is. But I would start with the text today and say that it, 
Our thankfulness is rooted in faith, so we need to examine our faith. So we need to ask ourselves, what is it that I believe? What is it I be- do I believe about what Jesus Christ has done for me in my life? How has Jesus Christ touched your life? And I encourage you, please go home, answer that question. And I hope you have a long list. Because the, the problem that we run into sometimes is like, what did Jesus do for you? Uh, saved me. I'm not going to hell. He changed my life a little bit. I'm a better person now. And we get this really, really short list. But what I want us to, to, to get to today is I think we need to have a kind of eye-opening moment like it seems that the one leper had. Where you see that the kingdom has come. That you heed the words of scripture and, and that your worldview could change today. That your, your worldview could broaden to see that in the coming of Christ, in the coming of that babe in the manger that we sing about, everything changed. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let us receive the king. He is here. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Do you believe he reigns? Do we really believe he reigns, that he's on a throne? Is he on the throne of our hearts? Can we be moved day by day to see that, to live into that, to think the Holy Spirit was left with us? Just the gift of the Spirit. You want to get on thankfulness. What it means that God has poured out his Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is not separate or other than God. The Holy Spirit is God. Amen. And he has indwelled us. He indwelled us. He's empowering us. He, he convicts us. He's, he's the one that won't let you just sit in your sin and be happy. Aren't you? Can, can we be thankful for the spirit who urges our souls about our sin and makes us uncomfortable with where we're at so that we grow? Could we be thankful for the spirit who binds us in the unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room? Because if it wasn't for the spirit, this church would fall apart tomorrow. I promise And can we be thankful for that spirit at work in our lives? But we first have to have the faith to believe it. In order to do that, we need to stir each other up to faith. We need to preach this message to ourselves, to one another. That's where, again, this discipline isn't free from Bible study. Be in the Word. Hear what the Word says about what our Savior has done for us. And we have to, every day, reorient ourselves to believe it. And to come before Jesus to his feet to return to him. Say, yes, Jesus, I received that. Thank you, thank you, I've received it. So first, it is rooted in faith. And we must take pains to make sure we believe in what he has done for us. The next part that I just hit on a little bit is we need to turn back. We need to stop in our tracks sometime. And turn back to the feet of Jesus. And, and let me tell you, this is something so hard for me. I'm on my way every day. I'm on my way to work. I get back from work. I'm on my way to whatever I'm doing next, whoever I'm hanging out with, uh, whether it's, it's some prep that needs done, whether it's even ministry. Whatever you have to do. And we go one thing to the next to the next. And we're just like those nine lepers on our way to the priest to get certified as clean so we can just go about our life. And we miss Jesus. And let me, it's just going to be hard. 
I encourage you, this, it, there's a reason that it's a nine and one split. There's a reason the majority goes the way the majority goes. You will have to do something radically different in your life, believer, to be any different than the nine. To overcome those odds. You have to seek it. You've got to let go. You've got you to kill the desire to self. It will consume you, this self-focus that we all have. And you're going to have to let go of that other thing in your life and say, no, right now, the only thing that matters is I get to the feet of Jesus and I look full in his wonderful face and I thank him because he's the one in my life that matters. Because you can't have relationship with someone and leave them as seconds all the time and never come to their feet and talk to them. So I urge you, build in your faith. And then get alone with the Lord. Turn back from your self-pursuit, your self-indulgence, and get at the feet of Jesus. And I, I want to leave you now saying also that as you do this, this is, I, I don't say that last point to get you to where you think, oh, thankfulness is only time in solitude with Jesus. Uh, if, we do, if we do that part where we work on our faith and we posture ourselves as receivers of grace... It's going to pervade all of our attitude and our thoughts. And that's why you may wonder why I come from an incidental account from the Gospels today instead of something in the epistles where Paul is telling you how to discipline yourself to thankfulness. And that's because actually as I look through it, you don't find a lot of Paul explaining how to be thankful. You just have him telling you to do it. And when he says it, typically he uses a participle. Which is just to say, don't worry about your grammar. I know, I know participles, those are scary. But, but it's just to say that it's usually along with another action and it's a modifier. So the other day when, when Pastor Kerry preached, there, there is this moment where he tells you to be filled with the Spirit, having thankfulness or, or, or with thanksgiving, right? So it's a modifier that goes along with other things. So everything we do, if you look at the way Paul uses it, he expects it to pervade everything else that we do, this, this thankfulness, because it's so deep-rooted because of our faith. All right, time is short, so I'm going to, to close now with a note to some of you who maybe I've confused this morning. When I say, come to the feet of Jesus in thankfulness, with all due respect, in this room, I think, I have a hunch, there's somebody who deep down doesn't know what I'm talking about. There's somebody in this room that may have been in the church a long time, and you are receiving grace in the sense that you're hearing the message of the gospel. In the sense that you were lonely, and you found a family in good news. In the sense that you felt unloved and outcast because of your past and your situations. And you come along and they tell you God loves you. And there's all kinds of things like that that you have loved about the church. You have experienced grace because of the way God has worked through his people. How have you responded to that grace? How have you responded to Jesus? Because my fear for some of you today is that you, like the nine would encounter grace from Jesus, having been far off, having been unclean, having been vile and destitute and morally bankrupt, as all of us are, that you, calling out to him from a distance for help, coming to church week in and week out, hoping that will help, going through the motions, hoping it will help, 
that you would remain at a distance and never know Jesus Christ in relationship. It's one of the deepest tragedies that I know, and I implore you today, if you have never come to the feet of Jesus with a thankful heart, I want you to examine your relationship with him today. I want you to examine your faith. What are you actually believing and trusting in out of Jesus Christ? I can only imagine his joy if, as he had asked, where are the nine, one more of those lepers would have crested that hill running back. I urge you to be that leper today. Better late than never.